This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpets Weekly Review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Joshua Taylor. Thank you for having me. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. A lot of exposing is going on these days in America and in other countries, too. Exposing of radical leftist activity that in many cases is criminal, even treasonous. Our first two stories today talk about this, first in America, then in Israel. In America, something truly extraordinary is happening. One of the world's richest men purchased one of the world's most powerful social media platforms, and he happens to be an advocate of free speech and is step-by-step exposing just how much censorship was going on, even government-directed censorship. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is truly an astounding story. I I double-checked the numbers this morning, and there's only 24 people on the planet with enough money (laughs) to buy Twitter out of pocket, Uh, and most of them are rabid liberals. So the the fact that you actually have someone who uh, bought... Twitter, a company that's probably not going to make him a tremendous amount of money as a financial investment, uh, just for the service of fighting for free speech in America is amazing. Mm -hmm. I think right after Elon Musk did that, the conservative commentator Jack Posobiec commented, he said, Elon Musk didn't just buy a company, he purchased a crime scene. And that is really what happened. I mean, he bought... (laughs) He's, uh, he's trying to make Twitter this digital town square so there's free speech in America, but he also bought a tremendous amount of evidence that we've only just starting to get a peek at. Uh, we've now got uh, two batches released from the what they're calling the Twitter files uh, and probably many more batches to come. Uh But those two batches have really given us at least three big revelations so far. First of all, last Friday, they had the first uh, batch of Twitter files where they're releasing all these internal emails between officials in the Biden presidential campaign and at Twitter asking that particular tweets regarding um, stories about Hunter Biden corruption and the Hunter Biden laptop be deleted and the and the Twitter employees were very accommodating with that. So we definitely have like a smoking gun showing collusion between uh, between Twitter and the Biden administration or the <laughs> the embryonic Biden administration, the Biden presidential campaign, uh, trying to suppress stories that could hurt Biden's presidential chances and get one presidential candidate in office instead of the other. And then right after that revelation on on Monday, they found out that there was actually, and and this is kind of a a strange thing, an an FBI employee or or a former FBI official, uh, Jim Baker, working, he'd retired from the FBI and he was working for Twitter, and he was going through the Twitter files and redacting information harmful to the FBI. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't even really get, like that first 
Twitter file batch. We've got a lot of dirt on the Biden administration or the, the Biden presidential campaign, but not so much on the FBI. We'll probably get more of that going forward because Elon Musk uh, fired, fired Jim Baker so that now he's actually in charge, Musk is, of what the public gets to see and not FBI officials mm-hmm. that have infiltrated Twitter. Yeah, although he, he said that it's possible that uh, Jim Baker actually deleted the information that would have implicated them even more than they are. I mean, he obviously had something to to hide, and apparently he was successful in, in removing at least some of that information. Right. That what they call the revolving door of like government officials who work for big tech agencies and big tech officials who go and work for government agencies is endemic throughout Twitter, Facebook, Google, all right. those big companies. So there is so much of that evidence that could be could be deleted. We'll we'll see in the. Um, the weeks going forward, there should be several more uh, big exposés from these Twitter files. The most recent one happened last night, uh, showing that uh, Twitter was uh, explicitly stopping tweets that they didn't delete but didn't like from trending. In particular, there was one, uh, this didn't have to do with the Hunter Biden story, but there was one uh, prominent conservative who was uh, warning people about the uh, information the government didn't want people to know about the coronavirus uh, and so they didn't delete his tweets, but people were interested enough in it that the, the tweet was about to go viral, start trending on on Twitter and the other social media sites. And so they actually altered the uh, altered their algorithm or however they do that to stop those tweets from trending. So that like unless you specifically follow that person, you won't see it. Mm-hmm. And so that's um that's a. Like, a little that's another important way that they do like what they call like shadow banning like with the um with the joke with the hunter biden stuff when you literally delete the tweet because a biden administration official asked you to that's just outright banning you right. deleted it then you have like shadow banning where it's like called shadow because you didn't actually delete the tweet it's still there if you know where to look for it uh but you stop it from uh going trending where people who aren't looking for are just going to stumble across it yeah yeah, it's it's uh, amazing to see all of this exposed to the degree that it is. When you look back on we've, the, the narrative that we've been hearing is, look, this is a private company. Uh, they can do what they want to do. Uh, no, this is not a suppression of uh, First Amendment rights because uh, any private company can make decisions themselves. But no, we're, we're learning this is government officials to directly saying, hey, you need to look at this and you need to, to uh, take care of this. And even uh, it's been exposed. The, the FBI has been telling these companies, including uh, Facebook, uh, hey, you, you're going to be getting some bad information, Russian disinformation about this Hunter Biden situation. Uh, make sure that you don't allow this misinformation to spread. Uh, so there's a lot more, as you said, this kind of incestuous relationship between these tech companies and government officials uh, than has been previously understood. Yeah, that was actually, that's a separate but very related story, not part of the Twitter files, but this week an FBI agent did testify to Republican uh, attorney generals that the FBI was actually holding weekly meetings with big tech companies like Google and Twitter to discuss the best ways to censor misinformation and and during those meetings they they had warned twitter that like hey some russian disinformation about hunter biden is coming your way when you see it censor it 
And then when they saw the the laptop story, they immediately censored it, which mm-hmm. uh, Elon Musk had commented after his first Twitter files leak. They said, he said, if this isn't a violation of the First Amendment, what is? Mm-hmm. Because the 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 the, go- the American government has been a little bit more savvy in its tech censorship than uh, authoritarian dictatorships traditionally are. Usually, like in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, the state just came in and nationalized and or like outright controlled media outlets. Where here, the in America, they've because of the Constitution, they've allowed. Uh, organizations like Google and Facebook and Twitter to continue operating as private companies, but with like a quid pro quo with the government. So they they just ask them to censor what they want to censor, and then they they know they better do it. And so, like uh, like Musk has pointed out, they said hey, if Twitter as a private company was just deciding on its own accord, hey, we're liberal and we don't want to publish stories that are negative towards liberals, that would be a big story, uh, but not an outright violation of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. But when you've actually got government officials uh, in the FBI having weekly meetings with your staff, telling them what they want you to censor, that makes Twitter (laughs) and these other big tech companies uh, like a de facto arm of the U.S. government. And this is now government censorship. Uh, that is in violation of the violation of the U.S. Constitution. So the the obvious uh, question in this is how much did this affect the 2020 election? There's obviously a whole lot of different factors that that played in election fraud and all of that. This is just one among many that show that that election was unfairly tipped against Donald Trump in favor of Joe Biden. Uh, there's no way to know exactly, but that that really is the big question uh, here. How much did this affect it? Yeah, because there's definitely very different types of election fraud. There's obviously like the outright blatant election theft where you're actually changing ballots cast for one person to another person. Uh, but then there's uh, more what you could call soft fraud where you're not changing ballots to another person, but you're using your control over the media to influence how people vote in a very unfair way. Um, there has been one survey uh, done by the uh, Technometrica Institute of Policy and Politics that indicated that 8 in 10 people surveyed believe Donald Trump would probably have been reelected in 2020 if the Hunter Biden story had been truthfully reported. So that's not an example of changing ballots cast for Trump to Biden, but actually convincing people who would have probably voted for Trump uh, to vote for Biden by just suppressing all the negative stories about Biden. And and a few people have made that case that they're like, if a third world country did this, uh, the, the State Department would declare their election illegitimate. Right. Uh, and so, and so there's, that shows just like the 2020 election was illegitimate on many levels. And so this type of stuff has to be, uh, exposed for that wrong to be righted. Our editor in chief books, America under attack, uh, very strongly makes the case that the 2020 election was fraudulent and that the Bible shows prophecies in second Kings 14 and Amos seven, that Donald Trump will return to power. Uh, but for that to happen, uh, 
like I said, the ways you stole this election have to be exposed. Uh, and mm-hmm. that really makes the fact that like one of the 24 people on planet Earth with enough money to expose this type of fraud uh, has done so uh, really just that much more amazing. Well, we do have a trumpet brief from this week by our uh, executive editor, Stephen Flurry. Twittergate, government agents censored speech to seize power. Go check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes, as well as Gerald Flurry's book, America Under Attack. Thanks very much, Mr. Miller. Now to Israel, where the left, which speaks incessantly about the importance of democracy, putting down threats to democracy, is truly unhappy about the people's choice in the last democratic election. The former prime minister is encouraging seditious behavior to undermine it. To learn about this, we'll turn to Josh Taylor. So this goes back mostly starting last week on December 1st when uh, Yer Lapid wrote in an open letter to to everybody, but specifically it was, enti- it was addressed to Netanyahu. Uh, but the open letter called on Israeli municipalities to not cooperate with Netanyahu's Ministry of Education. So this open letter is mostly talking about the Nome Party's Avi Mayoz, who will who is going to head up the new ministry of education he is perceived as anti lgbtq his party uh, is very deeply involved in social issues but and they come at it from a traditionalist standpoint a religious traditional standpoint so as you can imagine the left is not very pleased with this and so they've chosen to attack him on this uh on this specific point trying to not only attack uh mr avi but also do go after Netanyahu's whole government this way. And uh, Mr. Avi responded, in recent days, a wild public campaign has been carried out by the left with authorization of Yair Lapid and the media. It's a campaign of the minority, which lost the election against the national majority that had its emphatic say at the ballot box. This campaign is no less than an incitement to rebellion. And that's exactly what it's how it's being perceived by quite a few legal analysts, by the uh, even members of the media. And of course, Netanyahu is definitely taking this as an incitement to rebel against his government. And this is just one example of this uh, that's in the last two weeks. Uh, the very next day, uh, Yer Lapid was at a uh, military ex- exercise for the IDF in Tel Aviv. And reportedly, Haaretz reported that he told a general to expect Netanyahu's far-right government to, quote, get control of the army by stoking quarrels between soldiers and their commanders. Mm. When the generals responded shocked, saying, that sounds like total chaos, Yer Lapid then warned him, saying, chaos is, quote, exactly what they want. So he's trying to throw a wedge between Netanyahu and the military. And that's, again, not the only thing he's done. On Tuesday, he started calling on the Israeli public to, uh, to protest against Netanyahu's government. It's still in formation. They've now got uh, the outlines finished. They're ready to, to do it. There's just a few little details they want to button down still. But it's, right, for the most part, pretty well ready to go. And he's called on the Israelis to protest this weekend. And he said in a statement about that protest, we're done being upset by the outcome of the elections. We're going to fight for our country. And then he added, if you think what I've been saying the last few days is rebellious, I have news for you. You ain't seen nothing yet. Mm. 
So it, the the left has, and Yerlapid has just thrown off any pretense of defending democracy. They're just outright attacking it at this point. Mm-hmm. It's just remarkable to watch this happening, knowing uh, the link in prophecy between the Jewish state of Israel and America and Britain. And uh, we've talked so much about how the uh, the deep state and the uh, the radical leftist movement is being exposed within the United States. We've seen exactly the same thing within the nation of Israel here over the last few years. We've talked quite a bit about it, not nearly as much about what's happening in Israel, but uh, the, you see a, an entirely parallel situation where these people are willing to do anything to uh, to grab power, to hold on to power, to undermine their enemies, uh, and this rank lawlessness that, that uh, you're seeing on open display here, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, as you said, we see this both in the United States, in Britain, and in Israel. And with Israel right now, maybe we're kind of getting a good foretaste of what we can probably expect to happen in the United States when Trump comes back, as Mr. Gerald right. Flurry has been talking about. But yeah, the left is, they're just, un, they've unmasked themselves. This is, with the, th- the three examples I've given, is just kind of scratching the surface. Uh, there's other instances, including with the judiciary in uh, Israel that is trying to fight against uh, against Netanyahu. It's very much the deep state against the, the people, basically. Because mm. the people have elected, they had their say at the ballot. And the deep state doesn't care. They want their power. Because at the end of the day, as uh, George Orwell famously wrote, it's, you know, power is not the means, it's the ends, it's the goal, it's what they want. Hmm. Well, uh, Mr. Taylor has written an article about this that uh, should be up at thetrumpet.com. Yair Lapid warns Netanyahu, you ain't seen nothing yet. Go check that out there at the website. We thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Taylor. We go now to Germany, where some seditious activity from the other end of the political spectrum was exposed this week. To learn about this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, on Wednesday morning, 3,000 police officers raided 130 properties, arresting 25 different people, all in connection with an alleged coup attempt. Uh, So we've got a a modern Western country with the police rounding up people who were apparently uh, planning to take over the government. These people were all part of the so-called Reichsburger movement, so this Reichsburger movement claims that Germany's f- current federal government is illegitimate, that it's basically that it's a corporation. It's not a government uh, and therefore there is no moral or legal responsibility to obey with or cooperate with the German authorities. Everything that it's doing is illegitimate and the true ruler of Germany and actually quite a bit of Poland and several other places in Europe is in fact the German Empire. Uh, so the uh, the German Justice Minister, Marco Bushman, he said that the police were responding to a suspected terror network uh, and that suspicion exists that an armed attack on constitutional organs was planned. The One of the ringleaders was Prince Heinrich Thirteenth. He is a, uh, it seems like he is a, a German prince who's descended from a German principality. Uh, it's kind of a, they have the oddest naming system of any royal house I've ever encountered. So this royal house is descended from Henry the Fourth, 
uh, sorry, Henry VI, a 12th century Holy Roman Emperor. And every male descendant of Henry VI is supposed to be called Henry or Heinrich in German. And uh, so you get Heinrich the first, the second, the third. As you can imagine, they ran out of Henry's pretty quickly. So they once they hit 100, they st- they go back to Henry the first again. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah. Yeah, they've gotten through a lot of uh, it made researching this guy interesting because there are other Henry the 13th that have reigned in the same family just because the clock is reset. Uh, so anyway, this household, it was deposed in 1918 and Prince Heinrich was there, one of the key ringleaders that was supposed to take power. And then I think his partner had connections to Russia or, or was Russian and uh, they'd been cooperate or they'd, there'd been some kind of communication with the Russian government. Uh, where they would kind of shift Russia's Germany's policy in a pro-Russia direction in exchange for for Russian help. Well, it's it's quite a, a startling story, but I guess what what strikes me about this is it seems like this is kind of the it's it's a story that is not entirely unusual within Germany. It seems like there's this uh, there's this undercurrent of this kind of uh, far right. Uh, activity within Germany that does get exposed from time to time, that this is this is kind of a recurring theme in German politics. That's right. So in 2018, there was a big plot to overthrow the government. This was led by, or a key leader in it was a member of Germany's special forces, the KSK. Uh, and they they stockpiled ammunition. And it looks like that 2018 plot, the idea was this um KS, this special forces member had set himself up so he had this separate identity as a syrian refugee and so he would go and assassinate a bunch of left-wing figures getting rid of people that he didn't like and then a refugee would get blamed for that and then that they would kind of use this turmoil to try and have a right-wing government take power uh you also had uh, one of the suspects is a serving member once again in this particular plot in the KSK in Germany's special forces. Others are in Germany's army reserve. So once again, we're seeing this problem of, uh, of extremism within the German armed forces. And I think just in general, what makes this and those related plots that you that you talked about so worrying is you know, when we hear about this kind of armed conspiracy to take over a country, you you, you picture not normal people. Uh. You, know, you picture you know, crazy guys, you picture extremists, you picture some guy living in a mountain hut by himself, something like that. But a lot of this Reichsberger movement uh, and supporters are very mainstream. There's, there's a strong undercurrent of support within the German military, within the police, within the judiciary, within the, the, the civil services, especially, apparently it seems to appear to kind of German government functionaries. So this is one of the big takeaways. It doesn't seem like this coup was particularly likely to succeed or particularly well thought out. But you have a widespread group of people within the mainstream of German society that are so disgruntled with their government that they're willing to back an armed coup attempt. And for every one person that's involved in the Reichsberger movement, which is consistently listed as the top German domestic terrorist concern. Uh, For every one person in this movement, how many thousands are there who feel very strongly that Germany is heading in the right way, 
but are not to the point where they're going to grab an AK-47 and start shooting people. There's, uh, it points to just a much wider basis of an extreme dissatisfaction of, and again, look what this Reichsberger movement is doing. It's not just about a new chancellor. It's not about getting rid of Olaf Schulz. It's about getting rid of the German Republic and replacing it with the German Empire. Uh, it's a, a, it's a, it's a belief that government and society is fundamentally heading in the wrong direction and it will take violent action to correct it. How widespread is that view? Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be uh, easy to look at something like this and just say, well, this is a, a few extremists within Germany, but the, the sympathy for this kind of thinking is quite widespread within Germany. And when you look at it in light of biblical prophecy and what to expect from Germany, that the Bible warns the direction that Germany is going to take in the future. Uh, that's really where this becomes more than just kind of an interesting side note. Absolutely. And you know, the Bible talks about the, the Nazi spirit, that same spirit that you saw running, leading Germany in World War II, it going underground. You know, in biblical language, it's in the abyss, the bottomless pit, as it talks about in Revelation 17. But exactly the same spirit being underground, having these undercurrents. It's not obvious, uh, but it's there. There's people that want to to revive the German Empire underground. And Herbert W. Armstrong talked for decades about this being the case in Germany. And we have so we there are so many dots that we know now. There is so much of this prophecy that we have evidence of. We know now, historians have gone through and they've uncovered uh, exactly what Mr. Armstrong said was happening, leading Nazis preparing to go underground before the war ended, then disappearing, vanishing from the scene, not being, not appearing on trial on Nuremberg, going on and remaining part of everyday normal German society and government institutions. Now you see extreme views, even to the point of armed coups to bringing down the state, uh, spreading throughout these same German institutions. It's underground. We've got the evidence of that. And there's something much bigger coming right back up. And I wrote about this uh, back in uh, October 2020, the articles, Why Does Germany Have So Many Neo-Nazi Conspiracies? It goes through some of these different conspiracies that we've talked about and just tra traces their widespread support, but also shows what we're seeing is specifically and exactly prophesied in the Bible. And then, well, that has massive implications for this entire planet you know, if you follow what's happening what the bible says will happen in germany you know if you have a if you have germany taken over by people that want to revive the german empire we're talking about a total change in direction for all of europe from ally to adversary for the united states and britain so it's a story that uh, you know it's not just something funny happening in in germany this week right it's a terrific example of just how important it is to understand uh, the prophetic perspective of what is happening that you see uh, a story like this that really does seem kind of inconsequential actually is kind of the center of what to uh, to watch for from Germany going forward we will definitely continue to do that at the trumpet.com we appreciate you bringing that to us mr. Palmer we go now to Ukraine where the war against Russia continues with intensified missile attacks this week. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. 
Yes, Russia's war on Ukraine is now in its 10th month, and uh, this week, Russia suffered three serious drone attacks on military sites that were well inside of Russian territory. Two of the uh, strikes were at Russian military airfields that are actually hundreds of miles inside of Russia. So, you know, the Ukrainians here are really pushing back at the Russians with these attacks far beyond the borders of Ukraine. And a pair of Russia's bomber jets were destroyed in one of them. Those were Tupolev long-range bombers, and several Russian military personnel were also killed in that attack. So Ukraine is showing us that it, I, th I think, fairly suddenly has the ability to strike strategic sites well within Russia. And that represents, I think, just a major revolution in the war. And Russia, as you would expect, was incensed by these attacks. It has been retaliating, as you said in the introduction there, with missile strikes, on Ukraine. These are aimed especially at power grid infrastructure, uh, water pumping stations, things like that. Ukraine was able to intercept about 85% of the missiles in the latest barrage, which really shows us a major improvement in Ukraine's ability to intercept missiles like this. But the ones that got through still did a great deal of damage. I talked yesterday to one of the Trumpet's contacts in Kyiv, and he said that on most days, they now have two different blackouts that can span anywhere from uh, four to five hours each. And then he said that on days following a Russian attack, it's much worse. They might go two to three days entirely with no power, no internet at all. And of course, it's very cold in Ukraine right now. So um, he's, this is this is deliberate. Uh, this is Russia's deliberate strategy to try to uh, squeeze the people of Kiev and other Ukrainian cities with exactly these kinds of attacks that uh, that that hurt them in these cold months. That's exactly right. Yes, he's he's trying to make civilians suffer as much as possible in hopes of uh, making them want to give up, essentially. So it is, you know, these are terrorist attacks in a way. And then you've also got a significant increase this week of Russia using incendiary munitions or uh, phosphorus bombs. That's happening especially against the civilians in the Donetsk region. So, yeah, it just looks like the war is really evolving and escalating on both sides. Also a, a threat from Vladimir Putin this week about the possibility of of nuclear uh, using nuclear weapons. That's right. Yes, Putin uh, took part in a human rights council meeting on Wednesday and during his speech he said the threat of nuclear war is rising. Um, I'll just read a little bit from it here. He said such a threat is growing. It would be wrong to hide it. But then a little later, he did add that Russia still doesn't plan to use those weapons first. He said, we have not gone mad. We are aware of what nuclear weapons are. We aren't about to run around the world brandishing this weapon like a razor. So, yeah, this, this kind of rhetoric about nuclear weapons, it has become more and more frequent for Putin as his attempt to take Ukraine has, has kind of floundered. And it's sobering. You know, it's really as sobering as anything imaginable to hear about an increasing risk of these weapons being used. Um, Putin does often say that Russia doesn't plan to use them first, but of course he and Russia in general are not known for their honesty. It's often said, in fact, that you can't believe anything about Russia is true until the Kremlin denies it. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's very sobering to hear this. And I think it shows us that despite the setbacks, Putin remains fully committed to winning the war, and I believe that he is prepared to dramatically escalate things, even far beyond what we saw this week, if he feels that that's the only path to victory. That uh, we, we were looking at an article from Newsweek this week that was 
talking about uh, this, the new general that Putin put in place that is running the war over there. Everything that we're talking about really seems consistent with the fact that we are seeing a significant escalation in Russia's tactics with this new general in place. And they made an interesting analogy with that. Maybe you can just talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There have been several different generals over Putin's war effort so far, but last month, a new one, General Sergei Surovikin was put in charge. And that is around the same time that we started to see just this increase in methodical destruction of Ukrainian uh, infrastructure and mm -hmm. civilian targets were being targeted more and more with various missile strikes. So this, I think it looks like it was just kind of the logical recalculation from what we saw in the early months of the war. That was when Russia kind of expected an easy victory. They even expected Ukrainians to welcome them in, in their country as liberators. So at that time, Russia was fighting a much more limited war. But of course, we know that it didn't go as Russia had expected. And so now General Surovikin has been put in power and there's more targeting of all kinds of infrastructure, really trying to take out Ukraine's ability to sustain its troops and feed its troops and just moving more toward this total war kind of strategy, strategy that's just you know far more destructive and brutal. And this, uh, this Newsweek op-ed that was published on Wednesday, it drew some parallels between this shift that we're now seeing in Russia and what we saw back in the US Civil War, the, the 1860s. So the North started off fighting a more limited war with a high level of restraint, but they soon discovered that this strategy was, you know, it was bound to fail. And that's when you saw Generals Grant and Sherman come in and start to dismantle the entire railroad infrastructure there in the South and all kinds of other infrastructure. So the shift that the North made there was really toward something more total. And that shift is a big part of what eventually won the war for the North. So, you know, I think this Newsweek op-ed, the analogy isn't perfect. We know that the U.S. Civil War, um, there was also the matter of manufacturing, which was huge. That was enormous. And, and the North had it and the South didn't. So for supplying arms and ammo, that gave the North a game-changing advantage. So that was a big factor in the civil war. And it's actually the opposite of what we're seeing with Russia's war on Ukraine, because, uh, you know, because of Western backing, Ukraine has manufacturing and because of sanctions and incompetence and endemic corruption, Russia is really struggling in that area. Um, but nevertheless, I think this is a really interesting analogy. And if this new Russian commander is able to decimate more of Ukraine's infrastructure, it could really mean that the days of Ukraine being able to hold its own against the invaders are numbered. Fascinating stuff. We uh, appreciate you uh, bringing that to us. Where would you send people for, for more information about uh, how to view this prophetically? Yeah, there's an article that Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote back in February, just, just the day after this full-scale war broke out. And uh, he talked about how Putin's aggression is something that he's been specifically cautioning about for many years now. Um, one part of this article says, I've been warning for years that Vladimir Putin would be responsible for violent conquests and would set in motion some astonishing and historic events. And then, you know, he goes on from there to explain that his entire read of the situation is, is built on Bible prophecy. So it's a, it's a very detailed article, and I would recommend it to any listener who would like to better understand Russia's war in the big picture context. 
Bible prophecy comes alive in Ukraine. We'll link to it in our show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, a rising military superpower in Europe. Japan moving to further rid itself of its pacifist constitution. Saudi Arabia deepening its ties with China. And the Justin Trudeau government beginning to grab guns from Canadian citizens. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. As Russia's offensive in Ukraine intensifies, Poland is responding by significantly expanding its military capability. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, the U.S. State Department this week approved a deal that's still in the works that would see Poland gain another 100 tanks. It's a multi-billion dollar deal. And uh, these would, it would see them get 116 M1A1 Abrams tanks, but they would be upgraded to be M1A2 SEPV3, which (laughs) if you're not on all of your tank acronyms, uh, basically just means the most modern variant. Uh, This is in addition to an earlier deal where they're going to be buying 250 M1A2 SEPV2 tanks. And what this all means is Poland is becoming Europe's tank central. They just put these two deals together and just these deals alone is more tanks than Germany has in total. Hmm. More tanks than the UK has, more tanks than France, more tanks than Italy. Now, you know, tanks are not directly comparable about, about this. I think if you look at who has the most, I believe it's probably Greece, which has quite a large number of older tanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think perhaps what is more significant is that these are very modern ones. And you look at all of Poland's different uh, deals, they've also... Uh, got relationships with Korea as well. Uh, I think as of August, they bought 1,230 tanks from these two different countries, and it will give them the largest tank fleet among European NATO members. They have more tanks and howitzers than Germany as well. They're aiming for 300,000 troops. They want to raise their defense spending to 5% of their economy, which 2% is the big deal. This is what Donald Trump was really hammering, trying to get NATO members to spend 2% of their economy uh, on their military. Poland is looking at five. Last month, Politico called Poland Europe's coming military superpower. So we're seeing some pretty dramatic changes going on here. So do you do you feel like uh, in the big picture that Politico assessment is is accurate a rising military superpower within Europe compared to say a Germany or other uh, other militaries within Europe I think there's a bit of hyperbole there to uh, you know get a, a uh, catchy headline but certainly I, th- I think they're becoming a, ma- a major military heavyweight on on a level say with Germany or at least in Italy or France where they haven't been before. 
I think one fact that doesn't get talked about enough is that a lot of these countries like Germany, you know, they've got 250 odd tanks currently. They've also got a couple of thousand in storage. So uh, these some of these other countries could change their figures very, very quickly if they want. But certainly I think Poland is becoming you, you're, I think maybe a better way of putting it is we're seeing another military power in Europe. It's not just Europe basically being Germany, mm-hmm. Italy, France, and Greece. You know, you're adding Poland to the mix there as somebody you have to, to have to see with some serious respect. So it, it seems this is very much a part of a broader trend that we've seen that the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sparked something of an arms race or something of a uh, a response on European nations to say, we have to step up, we have to get our military act together. Uh, and the fact that Poland, which has historically been uh, victimized by Russia repeatedly uh, is a big part of that trend is significant when you look at it from biblical prophecy standpoint. Absolutely. And this is what Mr. Flurry has focused on right from the start, right even from the day that Russia invaded Ukraine. He was saying, well, what Europe, what Germany in 2014, the first kind of invasion of Ukraine he wrote, we have been prophesying for about 70 years that Eastern Europe would become a vital uh, part of a new European superpower, a resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. This prophecy is directly related to the Crimean crisis. The fear you see in Europe because of events in Crimea is going to cause 10 leaders in Europe to unite in a sudden and dramatic way, in precise accordance with the Bible's description of that European empire. Europe's new fear of Russia is going to play a major role in hastening the fulfillment of that prophecy. So we've been prophesying based on these Bible prophecies that Europe would be a strong military power. We've also talked about Europe having two legs. Daniel chapter 2 gives us the picture of this coming European power as having two legs. There's an eastern leg, there's a western leg. And with Poland kind of becoming a military equal with some of those countries in the west, you're really seeing that uh, eastern leg take shape. So it does directly tie into what we've been talking about. That article from Mr. Florian is called The Crimean Crisis is Reshaping Europe. And uh, I'll also mention on Monday we'll have an article coming up from Jeremiah, uh, Vladimir Putin threat of nuclear war rising, where he talks about the threat from Russia, but also zeroes in on why you need to watch how Europe responds to that threat. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. Now to Japan, which took another important step in ridding itself of the limitations imposed by its pacifist constitution and advancing militarily. For this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, the Japanese government has just voted to give the nation's military something that they're calling counter-strike capabilities. So, Japanese lawmakers have been uh, really carefully avoiding the word preemptive with these new capabilities, but that's exactly what this actually is. This new authorization will let Japan use its highly advanced missiles to preemptively strike at enemy missile launch sites if Japan thinks that those enemy launch sites are about to fire missiles at Japan. So, you know, they're really trying to paint this as a self-defense measure. You know, we're, we're only firing on your missiles if your missiles are about to strike us, therefore it's self-defense. And the reason why Japan is trying so hard to portray it that way uh, and just to avoid any use of the word preemptive is because of its 
pacifist constitution. After World War II, the U.S. occupied Japan and wrote a new constitution uh, for them that prohibits Japan from engaging in any kind of military activity beyond strict self-defense. They can only defend against attacks that threaten Japan's survival. So it's because of that ban that the Japanese are trying to avoid using the word preemptive. But preemptive really is what this is. I mean, if you're shooting an enemy's missile launch site before they can fire a missile, that is preempting the enemy's attack by definition. Um, And of course, Japan is a technology powerhouse, unrivaled in many ways. We learned this week that they'll be deploying a network of 50 new satellites just to enable these new counterstrikes. They're also now building about 130 new depots to house these long-range standoff missiles that they'll use for the operations. So yeah, it's it's a landmark ruling and just a major move away from the pacifist constitution. Uh, talk to us about the pretenses that Japan is using to push these kinds of initiatives where they're taking on greater independence militarily and casting aside these limitations. Sure, yeah. I think there are three main uh, three main reasons that are actually legitimate you know, for them wanting to fortify and really normalize their military. There's growing alarm about North Korea testing missiles. Those are illegal missile tests. Some of them go through Japanese airspace. Um, So that's very worrying to Japan. Then, of course, there's China. China is flexing and just pushing against the peace all throughout Asia, particularly toward Taiwan. The Japanese think that China will soon wage war on Taiwan. And Japan has actually said that they'll have Taiwan's back if and when that war happens. So if that's the case, Japan needs to be armed to the teeth. Um, And then the Japanese are also increasingly concerned about Russia. They're fearful of what they're seeing in the war on Ukraine, but then much closer to home, The Russians are actually militarizing the Kuril Islands. Those are just to the north of Japan. They were actually part of Japan until the closing days of World War II when the Soviets took them. So to see Russia now stationing missile systems on the Kuril Islands, that's very alarming to the Japanese. Uh, So yeah, all of this shows that Japan has plenty of reasons to want to increase its firepower and increase its legal latitude to use that firepower. Watching Japan undertake these initiatives is is interesting. They're defending themselves against threats that are emerging within Asia. And yet, prophetically speaking, uh, they're going to end up contributing to an Asian alliance militarily. Yeah, it's a great point. Right now, a lot of this arms buildup that we're seeing in Asia, it's the result of fears you know, by one Asian nation against another. Japan and China are are deeply fearful of each other. But we do know from the prophecies in, in Revelation uh, 16 and 9, also Ezekiel 38, that eventually these nations will lay their animosity aside and they will pool their resources and become one of the uh, very powerful blocks that fight in uh, nuclear World War III. Where would you send people for more information about this, Jeremiah? We have a uh, a Trends article. It's called Why the Trumpet Watches Japan's March Toward Militarism. And it takes a close look at all of those various prophecies that I just mentioned there. All right. Thank you very much for that. Now to China, which is deepening its ties with Saudi Arabia. It's inked a number of deals this week, some of which have troubling security implications. For this story, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. Yeah, so this really is kind of like a tale of two different visits between um, Saudi Arabia, China, but also Saudi Arabia and the United States. 
If you remember a couple months ago in July, Biden visited Saudi Arabia and it wasn't the warmest of welcomes. It was very awkward between the two for various reasons. And uh, I think the highlight of that entire trip was Joe Biden giving the crown prince a fist bump. <laughs> Whereas with China, Xi Jinping got a much warmer welcome. Uh, his car was ex escorted to the king's palace by members of Saudi Arabia's royal guard riding Arabian horses, carrying both Chinese and Saudi Arabian flags. He attended a welcoming banquet. And later on, the, when he visited with the crown prince, who is the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia under his father currently, he was greeted with a warm smile and a warm handshake. So the optics were quite different, as you can, as you can see. Uh, but what's really important about this visit is those deals that were made. Between um, all the different deals that were done, there were about 34 different investment deals that these two sides struck, totaling about $30 billion worth of economic investment by China into Saudi Arabia, which is just huge. And Xi Jinping in an op-ed wrote that, quote, uh, he was pioneering this trip to open a new era of relations between China and the Arab world. So it was wildly successful for China because China is right now the world's biggest consumer of energy and Saudi Arabia is one of the world's biggest uh, producers of oil and energy. So these kind of deals are important. Now, that's just the economic side of things. As you mentioned, there's security implications to these deals, too. Uh, the Chinese company Huawei, they are uh, a technology company specifically dealing with uh, information technology, uh, mobile, cell phone, all that kind of stuff. There was a one of these big deals was a uh, was a major deal between Huawei and Saudi Arabia, where Huawei is now going to move into Saudi Arabia and set up some very high tech complexes and also work with some cloud computing as well within the nation. Now. Um, our listeners may remember that back in, in Donald Trump, uh, when Donald Trump was in office, he actually banned Huawei from being operating at all in the United States because China typically uses this co this company as a uh, spying apparatus. When you have access to cell phones and everyone's communications, it's really easy to tap that. So uh, that was the U.S. is very concerned about these deals, especially that one. China is a very opportunistic power, and you see America's influence in the Middle East declining. Uh, China always seems ready to swoop in and uh, take over where America leaves the opportunity. Yeah, we see that. We've seen that all over the Middle East, not just in Saudi Arabia. If you remember back uh, last year with Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. is completely pulled out of there. China has jumped into that. Um, as Iran is kind of getting more belligerent, China's jumping on Iran. And now we're seeing that with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia said that uh, what they're trying to do is to straddle the fence between world powers. They don't want to choose between global powers. They want to be kind of in the middle. So traditionally, Saudi Arabia has been viewed as an American ally. So they're pulling away from that. And now they're moving towards China. But they're also moving towards another power as well, and that's Europe. Because if you look at the world right now, it's kind of split up between those three, the United States, China, and Russia, plus, and then the third power being uh, Europe. And the, in the future, we actually expect them not to go toward China, but to actually go towards uh, Europe. And we get that from a prophecy in Psalm 83, 
which talks about this this group of nations that come together in the and as we go through them uh, in our in our literature, Mr. Flurry and Mr. Armstrong identify most of those nations as Arabic uh, nations such as Saudi Arabia, Jordan, etc. But the final uh, country that's mentioned in that in that alliance is Germany, is Assyria. And so we do expect in the future uh, Saudi Arabia not to necessarily go uh, create a solid, rock solid uh, alliance with China, but to actually start moving toward Europe. Hmm. Well, we do have an article from uh, Abraham Blondeau from this past summer, Saudi Arabia Abandons the United States, that gets into some of these prophecies. We'll link to that in the show notes, and you can check that out for more about the uh, inroads that China is making into Saudi Arabia in America's absence. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. We'll finish with a story from Canada where the government is undertaking a program to buy back guns from law-abiding Canadian citizens. We'll go back to Andrew Miller for this story. Yeah, every American's worst nightmare is actually coming to Canada, where the government's actually coming for people's guns. After a huge mass shooting in Nova Scotia two years ago, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that he was banning 1,500 models and makes of military grades firearms and was going to buy them back from their owners. Uh, I think he's given them a fairly decent price between like a thousand to two thousand dollars per gun. So this will probably be fairly expensive for the Canadian government, but it's definitely running into some problems with the implementation. Uh, even though this announcement was made two years ago, they're finally getting to the time where they need to start collecting the guns. And many provincial officials are not going along with the plan. Officials in Alberta, Manitoba, New Brunswick, and Saskatchewan, and the Yukon Territory are all saying they don't actually have the Royal Canadian Mounted Police resources to go door to door and pick up guns. Uh, that that might <laughs> they they might be be worried about some pushback there. And Saskatchewan's actually gone a step further on December first, even passing their own uh, provincial legislation designed to counter the federal legislation. They're calling it the uh, Saskatchewan Firearms Act, which is intended to protect the rights of lawful firearms owners. So while Trudeau may be able to push forward this plan in some of the uh, more liberal provinces on the east and west coast, most of the middle of Canada uh, is not is not excited to start sending the Mounties door to door to uh, confront people with assault weapons. Yeah, Americans uh, can be alarmed at, at what's happening here, but anyone with any kind of view of history should also be alarmed. Yeah, we have an article online. Uh, you can check for more details on this story entitled Trudeau is Coming for Canada's Guns, which really puts this into um, just how widespread these this policy is, even going for handguns in many cases, uh, and comparing it to similar legislation passed in 1918 uh, in the Soviet Union, where before the government cracked down on the people, they also went door-to-door, -door, uh, confiscating firearms to really 
take away people's ability to ever fight back against future government crackdowns on other issues. Uh, so that article, we'll put that in this historical context and then also point to uh, some comments our editor-in-chief, Mr. Jordan Fleury, has made in his uh, book, America Under Attack, that talks about this left-wing movement in, uh, in the United States and Canada that's really just looking to crush any resistance to its uh, socialist policies. All right, very good. Thank you, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, and Richard Palmer. And thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Thomas Jefferson. Nothing can stop the man with the right mental attitude from achieving his goal. Nothing on earth can help the man with the wrong mental attitude. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.